everybody. Welcome to LiveWire. My name is Luke Burbank. I am your host. How's your week going? Hope you're having a good one. Uh, We have a cool show in store for you this week. Uh, We decided to focus on that moment in life, and I know we've all had one, where you realize that you are in way over your head. I had a story of this happening uh, when I got on stage talking to our announcer, Elena Passarello, at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, Oregon recently. Take a listen to this. Ten years ago or something, I had been laid off from a radio job, and I was trying to figure out how I was going to make some money. And so a friend of mine said, if you have any experience kind of talking in front of crowds, huh? <laughs> and if you have a, like even a moderate amount of notoriety from being on the radio, you can make some money emceeing, like hosting <laughs> corporate events, and also giving what's called a keynote speech in front of whatever this company, and you, you give them some kind of like inspirational, motivational speech. And you don't have to have any expertise in a specific field. You just have to know how to be personable in front of a microphone. And, and Well, you... looking back on it now, I think it would actually help to have some expertise. <laughs> but I was trying to kind of go with door number two. Okay. Uh, I got in touch with my, my friend's speaking agent, a woman who organizes these kinds of things. And she said, well, what you need to do is you need to write up what your keynote speech would be about. And because I am very lazy, I never got around to writing up the (laughs) keynote speech. So what happened was she wrote an idea of a speech for me and put it on her website. My speech was supposed to be how to be unreasonable during unreasonable times. Okay. (laughs) So in other words, when the world gets chaotic... You need to be more chaotic as a company. <laughs> like a like an into the crevasse kind of a thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And it, by the way, is as terrible a premise as it sounds. <laughs> Being unreasonable in unreasonable times. I have no idea why this was the thing she wrote. But she didn't write the speech. She just wrote the idea for the speech. <laughs> and the Oregon Banking Association hired me to give a speech about how to be unreasonable in unreasonable times. You know, if, if when I would imagine an institution that would hire you based on that tagline, a banking association is not, is not the first line of work I would have thought well, about. Well, exactly. And here was the reason I think that they were grasping at this particular straw. This was at the absolute height of the financial crisis. Oh, no. <laughs> These people were like losing their banks left and right. And they were like, this guy has the answers. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't even know this is what the speech was supposed to be about until like two days before the speech. (laughs) This is what what I constructed in my mind was like, okay, I don't know anything about banking. I don't even know anything about keynote speeches. (laughs) But I will just be entertaining when I get there. Like, they won't even remember that I didn't say anything useful because they'll just have been so entertained. Okay, okay. So I go down to this like fancy hotel here in Portland on the appointed day. And I go into the conference room where the, the speech is about to happen. And I'm just like, these guys are going to love me. Because how, I mean, banking speeches have to be so boring typically, <laughs> right, right? right? I walk in and there is the guy who's before me giving his speech. And he is like an avuncular 6'6 banker from the South. Wow. Who is one of the most dynamic speakers I've ever seen in my life. Oh, no. He has slides. No, not slides. He has PowerPoints. <laughs> he has stories about like churches who are trying to get business loans to open a strip club. He has hilarious <laughs> banking anecdotes, which is like an oxymoron. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> and I'm in the back of the room getting coffee. And a guy comes up to me and he goes, what bank are you from? And I go, 
uh, I'm actually here to give a speech. I'm going next. And he goes, good luck. Oh, no. And that was a moment I felt like I was really in over my head. Oh, that's really good. That's a- and then how did the speech go? Well, I'll put it this way. The, uh, the agent, speaker's agent lady, called the banking association to get their feedback on the speech. And she called me and she said, well, I got some feedback from them. Uh, they described there as being a real credibility gap. <laughs> their official feedback under other was credibility gap. Which is the name of the speech that you now give. Yes, yeah. Uh, oh, and it's great. It's actually a big hit everywhere. Making uh, the most of your credibility yes. gap with Luke Burbank. That's actually not a bad idea. I would totally see that speech. I would totally go to that speech. Uh, what about you? When, when, when have you been in over your head? Well, like all the time. Uh, I think I have that t- fake it till you make it. But the thing that people don't realize with fake it till you make it is once you've made it, you're still faking it. So I've just been faking it my whole life. Um, I worked as an actor before I became a, a radio announcer for a PRI radio show. Slash a prominent writer. Slash uh, cat wrangler. Right. But back about, I was an actor for about 10 years and I had moved to Austin, Texas finishing my first book and uh, I had so little money that I actually auditioned for a play uh, to make money. You know that writing is not paying out, paying off with like this a lateral move. I didn't get that lucrative world of local theater. Yeah, that's right. Didn't get the part, went back home, uh, spent two weeks, two months just finishing my book in, in darkness. Right. Uh, And then uh, the day that I finished my book, the phone rang and it was this theater. It's the biggest theater in Austin, Texas. And they said, we're actually doing a show Tonight, right now, it's about to open. Uh, it's Spring Awakening, which is this musical about kids and sexuality that takes place in the shtetl or something. And our the one adult actress that we have who's playing all of the adult parts just uh, had a kidney explosion of some sort. And we By the th- way, great heavy metal band, Kidney Explosion. Kidney Explosion. Uh, I like their early stuff. I don't yeah. know. Oh, okay. Well, you're a hipster. Can you come in and fill in, because we think you might fit the costume. <laughs> This is the day of the show. Day of the People show, are going y'all. to the theater to watch a performance of Spring Awakening. Yeah. And that is the same day that you are being told you're going to be in Spring Awakening. Right. After months and months and months of not just like not acting, but not moving, just sitting at a computer going like this. And I was like, you know what? Fake it till you make it. Why not? It was like noon. I drove down to the theater. The director like met me in front of the stage and all the lights were up. And he was like, hi. You're gonna do great. They took one look at my hair and they said, I have black hair, radio people. Uh, and uh, they were like, oh no. And they had to call Houston and get, a, they were like, Houston, the we NASA have a problem. People? Yeah, they did. No, no, they called like another theater in Houston and they fl- uh, they drove a wig in for me because the actress that had the kidney explosion was blonde. And so not only is this show happening in seven hours, it's a musical, right, with a bunch of musical numbers. And I played like six parts. And I looked at this guy and I was like, how are you going to do this? And he was like, well, you're mostly playing teachers and things like that. So we're going to give you a big book that's like a prop that you hold on to. It's going to have the script in there. And we're just going to just cross ourselves and hope that this works. And we ran through the show once without the actors, or the real actors, the ones who had been cast in the show. Like the ones who knew the lines. Yeah, the ones who knew what the play was. I didn't know what the play was about i just i like i like uh, had it on like my spotify and was like listening to it while i was driving to the theater like oh, okay and then um we ran once with them went back and then they had to put me in the costume and fit it for me so i just spent three hours 
uh, terrified. I felt like I like I've never jumped out of a plane, but that must be what it, it feels like. I don't you know. Realize you're, have, you're basically but. describing a stress dream. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is a con. Like I have a stress dream that I'm in a play and nobody told me I was in the play until hours before. Samezies, total samezies. How did it go? I don't think I've ever had so much fun. When I was doing it, it was so scary. I was just, I, I was like, I felt like I didn't have peripheral vision. You know what I mean? Yes. And then I did the show, The Woman's Kidney Explosion. She didn't get over it in one day. Yeah, so. that's not a one day thing. <laughs> no, no. So I did the show like five or six more times and then I learned the lines and I sort of learned the dance numbers and they rehearsed me in. And you could tell that the, fir- the first night when I did it and I made it through without dying, they were like, that was so amazing. You're so amazing. You're Mother Teresa. You're Barack Obama. You're amazing. And then as I started to just become like a working actor, they were like, oh, yeah. This is why we didn't cast you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's not, she's not that good. Okay. <laughs> so I was better when I was jumping out of the plane having the stress nightmare dream than I was when, uh, when I was actually just a hired person who could, had time to study. So. That is incredible. Do you feel like that emboldened you for like the rest of your life to just have even like less fear? I don't know. I think I'm more in over my head now than I ever have been. Being a college professor yeah. is more frightening than yeah. doing a play you don't know the lines to? I think it teaches you where your fear center is. Right? Well, I'll tell you. God bless the crooked road that brought you here to Livewire, uh-huh. Elena Passarello. <laughs> um, well, on the subject of uh, getting in over your head, we've got somebody uh, with us today who knows a thing or two about that. And let's get them out right now. Please welcome Matt Young to Livewire. <laughs> Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, your uh, your new book is "Eat the Apple." It's about your time as a uh, U.S. Marine in Iraq. Uh, it's being described as a, a modern war classic. Uh, it's quite a read. I'm wondering where were you at in your life when you decided that you wanted to uh, enlist in the Marines? Uh, I was I was drunk, <laughs> or or maybe hungover from the night before. Uh, I had crashed my car into a fire hydrant, drinking as a teenager. Uh, nobody got hurt. I didn't get hurt. The fire I was hyd- the fire hydrant. The, the fire hydrant got hurt and then dumped at the bottom of somebody's pool. Um, but that's besides the point. Uh, and then I woke up the next morning and my car was wrecked and I felt like an ass. And so I was driving home and in, I lived in Indiana and uh, there are a lot of strip malls in Indiana and uh, I ended up driving past one of them and in it was the Armed Forces Recruiting Center uh, next to a Pier 1 imports uh, and, a, and a Walmart, weirdly. Uh, and so I said, you know what, maybe that'll give me direction. Um, and I walked in and the only office open was the Marine Corps because it was a Sunday. Um, and I walked in and I said, I want to go in the Marine Corps. And they said, okay. Yeah, that fish really jumped in the boat for them, I think, right? Because, like, recruiters, they have to beat the bricks and, like, go to the high school and, like, you know, give you free socks or whatever and try to get people to be a part of it. You just walked in and said, can you please let me be in the Marines? I didn't even get a lanyard. Like and I walked in and I I said, I want to be in the infantry, too. I was just an angry teenager and I wanted to, like go hurt people and I wanted to be hurt and then I and I told him that and the guy looked at me in the eyes and he said you're gonna die and I and I said okay this was a real conversation that happened in the strip mall in Indiana there's a legitimate conversation I feel like that recruiter needs to work on his sales pitch yeah 
Imagine if you had gone into the Pier 1 that was also in the shopping center and said, I want to hurt people. I want to get hurt. You know, what would they give you? You buy this rattan bench, you're going to die. I think they would have directed me to the Marine Corps service station. Um, the fact that you wore glasses uh, seemed to be an immediate issue as you entered the uh, Marine Corps. Uh, can you remember or can you list some of the nicknames that your glasses had? Uh, portholes, birth control goggles. Um, <laughs> I think those are the main two they get called. BCGs for short. But The idea being that if you have these glasses on, nobody will agree to have sex with you. Hence, birth control goggles. <laughs> yeah, nobody. Nobody wants that. Why were you not allowed to use the pockets in your cargo pants? It seems like the whole reason that they were designed... <laughs> Is to hold things, but you would get in trouble if you put something in the pockets of your cargo pants? Yeah, if you try and hide something in the pockets of your cargo pants. You have to carry, like, a book that's called Knowledge in your cargo pocket, and that's the only thing that can go in your cargo pocket. If they find anything else in your cargo pocket, it is, like, you, you would have thought that, like, I don't know, somebody kicked their dog. Like, they, are, they get really mad. Why? Like, furious. I don't, I never found <laughs> out, but I feel like it, maybe it's, like, upsets the silhouette that you cut or something ah. like that. Like, they're like, it's too bulky. We don't like it. Uh, no, please don't do that. There's really a book called Knowledge? That sounds like a, a line from a common song. Yes, it is called, it is called Knowledge. Yeah. That you carry in the, the one cargo pocket you're allowed to have something in. Then why yeah. didn't they call it the Knowledge Pocket? Yeah. If, it was, if it's only for knowledge. I feel like maybe spokesperson for the Marine Corps, Elena Passarello, yes. job number three. <laughs> um, okay, quick break. Uh, we have Matt Young here. Uh, the book is Eat the Apple. This is Live Wire Radio. Coming to you this week from the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, and we will be back in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Based in Portland, Oregon, Fully is an amazing company that sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier while you are being productive doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording Livewire. That's right. I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing, keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast. If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to Fully.com slash Livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash Livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter. That gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well. And just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference in your, in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, it's made such a difference for me and for our whole Livewire staff, and I know you're going to have the same experience. So again, find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y, dot com slash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. This week we're at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, Oregon. I'm Luke Burbank along with Elena Passarello, and we have Matt Young here. He is a writer, uh, former U.S. Marine. His new book is Eat the Apple about his time uh, in Iraq. Um, one of the things that really struck me from the book is just how much boredom there really is uh, when you're at war. It's, it seems like something that just veers between total boredom and, and sort of sheer terror. Talk about the boredom of being at war. 
he has a real hurry up and wait mentality for everything. Um, and so you get really good at tossing rocks into random holes from distance uh, <laughs> or making up other random games or like playing Never Have I Ever. With your fellow soldiers just trying to figure out how to pass the time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, you seemed really miserable throughout boot camp, I mean, based on, on how, you, how you sort of write about things in this book, but then you also talk about the moment when you finally, I guess, get to Iraq, and you're running from the plane because there's possibility of sniper fire, and you said that that actually was really exciting, like you were very excited to get to that point in the journey. Yeah, of, of mortars and snipers and all kinds of other uh, things that are flying at you. Yeah, I think like I was really scared up until that point, and then you get to that point, and I had this really weird kind of double feeling of like fear, but also excitement and, and wanting to be there. And it feels like you're kind of like this weird action figure and you've been like hermetically sealed and like packaging and then somebody's like let you out of the thing and they're like, go, go free little thing and fly and, and do your job. And it feels like you finally get to do it. I mean, as gross as it is, like it feels good, I think, in that situation. Yeah, did you feel like once you were actually sort of at war, was it giving you the release that you were hoping it would when you were a kid walking into the recruiting office in the strip mall next to the Pier 1? I mean, you had obviously a lot of feelings that you didn't know how to process. Did they get processed out there on the battlefield? No. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, I didn't process any of that stuff until I got back. I don't, you don't have time to process any of that stuff. It's like one thing after another after another. And even if it's boredom and tossing rocks into holes, you're just constantly stressed out that like you're just waiting for something to happen. So you're just in a constant state of stress that is like, like prevents you from processing anything uh, until that moment. When did writing become a part of your, your whole MO? Oh, uh, not until... I got out in 2009, and then I, I didn't really start writing about my experience until like 2011-ish when I was at Oregon State. Uh, I Go put Beavs. A, I put a beaver on it. Um, and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then I wrote these really bad fiction stories that were like defending my position because I wasn't really ready to be honest about what I had done and who I had been. And then I didn't start writing fi nonfiction about it until 2014. Uh, so you say defending your position. Yeah. Uh, you were... I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but were you trying to sort of justify being a part of, of the war effort? Yeah. You come back and I feel like, you know, people have very strong opinions about the war in Iraq, which, which they should have. Um, but then I felt like Corporal Young and like the little tiny speck of something in like a bigger machine. And I, I felt like I needed to defend that in some way, shape or form. Like, you know, I'm still weirdly proud of being a Marine, and, and, uh, but I also have a complicated relationship with it. And so initially, I didn't want to kind of face the pain and horror that I had caused as a Marine uh, in a foreign country. And, and so it felt more like I needed to explain that position and kind of back it up and defend it. And then um, later on, I, I was uh, in a position to have a lot of support from you know, my wife and professors at grad school. And they gave me a space where I felt like I was safe enough that I could write about that stuff and not be like, completely judged. Um, and even if people judge me now, I don't really care because I feel like I've kind of come to terms with it. Uh, we're talking to Matt Young. His book is Eat the Apple, uh, about his time uh, as a Marine in Iraq. Um, there are some really dark parts. There's a particular moment you write about where um, somebody had blown themselves up, uh, I guess probably in an attempt to do some damage to your platoon maybe, and you guys come across this carnage of this person. And there's some stuff in there, and you interacting with the remains of this person. That is just... I had to read it a couple times to make sure I was reading it correctly. What did it feel like to write 
that stuff and write about your behaviors and war in a book, knowing that lots of people are then going to see that. Like, did you struggle with the decision of whether or not you wanted to be that honest about things? I think I think initially, right, that's like why fiction didn't work for me at first is because I had the ability to create characters that weren't me, that were better than I had ever been. And so that had like kind of made a wall for me in that situation. But with nonfiction and also in the changing of perspectives when I'm writing like third person or something like that or writing in the second person or in like the first person plural, it feels like I get to look at that person that I was um, from kind of this bird's eye view and, and be a little bit more honest than I would be able to if I was writing in first person. One of the, the things that I'm so jazzed about about this book is the shifting points of views and then just the shifting approaches. One chapter will be like a like an outline. One will be like a multiple choice test. There's a there's a play. There's a play. Or a scene from a, a play, play, I guess. There's a, a comic that I pretty much think had to have been illustrated by you. They didn't outsource <laughs> yeah. that yeah, just no, based that on... Was, that was me. It uh, is stick figures, people. It's not... Yeah. yeah. You, so you're at your computer or your, your notepad or your quill pen, whatever you're doing, right? <laughs> is there something about the nature of the story that makes you want to sort of break the formal choice or, or, or like you said, pen back with point of view or... Yeah, so a lot of it was like based on fiction that I was reading at the time or something like that would usually be like, oh, this form might kind of fit this story, but also kind of how I just started to like remember stuff in my brain um, and how my memory works. I'm, a, I'm really visual and it comes in these kind of quick flashes, but it also the way that I remember things tends to be a little bit maybe non-traditionally formed sure, or something yeah. like that. So maybe that's kind of where it comes from. But it, it definitely felt like they were organic to the the actual, I hate that word, why did I use organic? <laughs> uh, but, I, but yeah, they felt like they definitely fit. Like it didn't feel like I was stretching. And I think the ones that did feel like I was stretching didn't make it into the book at all. What are the Q&As like uh, when you're touring a book like this? Um, a lot of people ask me how I'm doing which is weird. I'm all, I'm good. How are, you, how are you doing? I understand people wanting to ask that question, though, having read the book, because, I mean, it's, I think it's a really effective yeah. portrait of how destabilizing it can be for a human being to be integrated into this military-industrial complex, you know? Like, I, I, I think somewhere in the back of my mind was hoping you're okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, like, the book kind of stands as, like, an artifact that points in that direction. Like, I don't think I could have created that thing if I wasn't okay, but then... Uh, I also get it. Like the people that I talked to at Bloomsbury, who became my editor, uh, my editorial team, they were really worried about talking to me the first time. They were like, "We don't know who's going to be on the other side of the phone. Is it going to be this person who's going to like scream at us in like Marine Corps speak, or is it going to, or who is it going to be?" So, uh, I t I get that. I get it. But it also is like when people are like, "Are you happy to be home?" It's like. Yes. <laughs> I've also been home for like nine years. Like I've been out of the Marine Corps for a long time, longer than I was in. So That's Matt Young right here on Livewire. Matt, here at Livewire, we, we try to get to know our guests in a very real, very deep way. And so in front of you, we've got this uh, actual physical jar. It's got five questions in it, which uh, we think are the five essential questions of our age. And we call it the Jar of Truth. Uh, here's, here's what we'd like you to do if you're up for it, Matt. We'd like you to uh, draw a question from the Jar of Truth and then hand it to our announcer, Elena Passarello, who will read the question. And then uh, we will uh, get your honest answer to a question from the Jar of Truth. Are you up for it? I am up for it. All right. He has selected the question. And Elena, uh, fire when ready. All right, Matt. <laughs> that bodes well. Are tattoos a good idea? 
No. I will mention to the radio audience uh, that Matt Young has uh, uh, some significant tattoos on his arms, including USMC yeah. and uh, what we would call a sleeve. So you're, you've got a lot of tattoos. But I, your I honest answer to the question is they're not a good idea? I, I don't know. I don't want to give the kids out there any kind of ideas. I, I, I love tattoos so much. Uh, I, have, I actually have an appointment to get one on the 15th. Um, what are you going to be getting? Oh, I'm getting an Apple core. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know what? I'll Let's do, like, uh, commemorate the book. Why don't you explain, uh, be, for folks that don't know, uh, Eat the Apple seems like an odd name for a, a war memoir, but there's a backstory to it, right? Uh, yeah, so it's a saying that uh, kind of came about in Vietnam um, that it, the full saying is Eat the Apple, F the core. Um, <laughs> and and it, it's essentially like, you know, like take that four years of experience and like and, and, and consume it and let it be, you know, be, be a part of that thing. And then like when you get done, you just toss it and, and leave it behind. Um, but also like there's that nice little uh, metaphor of like consuming knowledge or something like that in, in the Eat the Apple uh, saying so. Do you feel like that happened with you? Like, obviously, going to war changed you. Uh, did it change you for the better in any way? Did you take from that experience? Did you get some apple out of it? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think it didn't, my, my processing of all that, like, knowledge, quote, unquote, didn't really come until later. But I think that I, I definitely, um, I, you know, as horrible a human being as I was as a Marine and, and during war, I think that it's made me kind of, you know, really reflect on who I want to be now as a as a man and as a person. And I think that's that's you know it's a kind of a horrible way to go about doing that. There are definitely other ways to do it. Uh, uh, I think that um, you know if I would have had a little bit more direction earlier on in my life, I'm, I may not have needed the Marine Corps as much. Um, but I definitely I definitely feel like I I learned a lot from it. Although it took a few years for me to kind of process it and come to terms with it all. Matt Young, everybody, the book is Eat the Apple right here on Livewire. Thank you. Thank you. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is Livewire Radio coming to you from the Alberta Street Pub in Portland this week. Luke Burbank along with Elena Passarello. We're talking about uh, those moments when you realize you're, you're in over your head a little bit. And we, we asked the crowd here uh, to tell us about some times when they realized that they were, in fact, in over their head. Elena, you've uh, been collecting those submissions. What do you got? Oh, we've got some good ones. Uh, Rachel uh, says she was in over her head when her partner told her she wants to have a Marie Antoinette-themed bridal shower before their future wedding that will cost at least... $10,000. <laughs> Which I think, I mean, you're getting out pretty easy if a Marie Antoinette themed bridal yeah. shower only costs you 10 G's. Just the cake alone should probably be like 7000 Yeah, yeah, Come yeah, on, yeah. that was a Marie Antoinette joke. I can't yeah. believe this public radio crowd didn't yeah. go with me on that. Yeah. I gotta tell you, uh, my wife and I, uh, before uh, we were actually married, uh, she was looking at wedding dresses. And she said to me, look, I don't really care what happens with the wedding in terms of it being particularly fancy or not. She said, I would really like to have a dress that I'm very happy about. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a reasonable thing for her to want. The dresses that we looked at at this one place where there's like a team of dress people 
clipping the back and br- they bring you alcohol, by the way, which is not an accident. <laughs> They're trying to get you lubricated because this one dress was like twelve thousand dollars. Wow, thirteen thousand was like it was like a second mortgage was going to be needed. Wow, but I was you know I was like this is the one request, so I was like I guess this is a thing I'm gonna spend twelve thousand dollars on. <laughs> And we wanted to have our wedding at this one location that was not available, and then someone canceled at the last minute. And she called me one day. I'll never forget it, because it was one of the greatest days of my life. She called me, and she said, they just told us there's an opening, but it's in two weeks. I said, that's great. She goes, but there's bad news. And I said, what? She goes, they're not going to be able to make the $12,000 dress in time. (laughs) I said, Somehow we'll make it. <laughs> what does what does a twelve thousand dollar dress look like? Is it- I don't know because the one she got was like four hundred and it looked the same. No. She might have got it at like TJ Maxx. No, <laughs> TJ's House of Fashion. That's yes. what that's what I call TJ Maxx. Oh, so you're a real Maxinista. I'm a Maxinista. The shop says TJ's House of Fashion. <laughs> uh, what else do you have? Over oh, there? sure. Uh, here's one from Anna. Anna realized that Anna was over Anna's head. When I thought I could do a handstand in yoga. <laughs> oh, man. Is there a more passive-aggressive place that is built around the concept of being Zen than yeah. a yoga class? Yeah. Yeah. No, when, once, once the like, complicated poses come out, I feel like it's, a, it's like a room full of jackals. That, that are all placement. Training. There's like so mm-hmm. many little microaggressions that go on. It's true. In an otherwise chill environment. I was doing yoga uh, and I went to Mexico for my birthday and they had like a yoga class and a cat showed up while we were doing yoga and sat with the yoga teacher and watched us do the yoga and judged us. It was awesome. It was so great. Uh, what else do you have over oh, there? Oh, sure. Uh, here's a, an anonymous contribution. That usually means it's going to be something that they're embarrassed about. <laughs> I think it's something that we've maybe all experienced. Tell us about a time you realized you were in over your head the first time I furnished my house with IKEA furniture. <laughs> and really IKEA in general is like just the ex- the American getting in over your head uh, oh, yeah. experience now. I mean my friend Cotter says the first direction on assembling any IKEA furniture should be open a beer. I was like, you're going to be here for a while. Every piece of Ikea furniture I put together, I am sure at some point that they didn't send everything. Yeah, no, always. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. There's always a piece. Oh, they screwed this one up. (laughs) All right. Uh, Here on Livewire, as you know, if you're a regular listener, we have lots of guests on from all over the country. But of course, our local scene right here in Portland is full of interesting folks. And we think you should know about some of them. It's a segment that we call New Fascinating Friend. Let's meet one right now. Please welcome Brandy Tuck to Livewire. Hi, Brandy. Welcome to Livewire. Hi, thanks. So you moved to Portland in 2005, and then not too long after that, you founded something called Portland Homeless Family Solutions, uh, which uh, helps homeless families. Uh, Why didn't you start a folk band or artisanal brewery like everybody else? It's a great question. Well, talk about being in over your head. I was a volunteer at this shelter for about two years called the Goose Hollow Family Shelter, downtown Portland. And when I was 24, their executive director left. It wasn't yet a nonprofit. It was just this little shelter. I said, oh my gosh, that's my dream job. I want to do that really badly. But I'm 24. No one's ever going to hire me to be the executive director of a shelter. 
and then they did. And it's been 11 years, and we've grown from four of us with a $78,000 annual operating budget to this year we're almost $3 million, and we help 200 families a year move back into housing. Wow. Thank you. Um, how does an entire family become homeless, typically? Well, people become homeless for lots of reasons, but mostly it's because housing is really expensive and jobs don't pay enough. And so the, about 75% of the people we work with work full-time. Minimum wage earners working 40 hours a week make $1,500 a month after taxes. The average two-bedroom apartment in Portland is $1,200 a month, so you have $300 left for transportation, food, clothes, entertainment, a beer once in a while, uh, and so it's just really an economics issue. So I, I was watching an interview you'd done uh, a while ago talking about the, the way that homelessness has sort of changed in that uh, there was a period of time when it was mostly single people, a lot of single men, uh, but at some point it really transitioned into really being entire families that have nowhere to live. What changed? Yeah, well in 2015 here in Portland, we call that the summer of the mass eviction. It's when the housing market really started changing and a lot of people were continuing to move to Portland. Uh, landlords thought that they could make a lot of money off of all these people moving to Portland, so they started raising rents a lot. People's rents would be raised 100% in one month. There were large 100-unit apartment complexes that that every single tenant in the apartment building was just given a no-cause eviction because the landlord wanted to move everybody out and move more people in that could pay a higher rent per month. Last year, in the uh, Multnomah County School Districts alone, Multnomah County is the county where Portland is, and there's a couple of other cities here, Gresham, Troutdale, Fairview, 4,300 students last year experienced homelessness just in Multnomah County schools alone. Wow. What does that do to a kid? I mean, because like I grew up pretty poor, but like, and I was constantly embarrassed about being poor, but like I had a house to go home to, you know? Like I, I just can't even imagine the impact on a kid being homeless. It's really hard. When someone experiences homelessness, they go into literal survival mode where there's a chemical reaction in the brain that literally turns off your logical functioning, critical thinking mechanisms, and you only have your survival mode mechanisms. Fight, flight, eating, sleeping, uh, those are really the only abilities that you have. And so the kids that are going through this, they can't pay attention in school. They aren't able to make friends. They're really socially isolated. There's research to show that children who experience homelessness end up having early health problems, adopt early health risks, and end up having premature death. The average age of a person who experiences homelessness when they die, they, the mortality rate's about 49 years old for people who experience homelessness. Um, I, I, you uh, are part of a, a team who's launched this, uh, this new initiative, the Lullaby Project, though. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, the Lullaby Project is a project that was created by Carnegie Hall in New York City. It matches professional singer-songwriters with mothers who are experiencing homelessness, and it helps those moms pair one-on-one -on -one with a professional musician to co-create a lullaby for that mom's kids. So the Oregon Symphony brought the Lullaby Project to Portland. They invited us to be their partner. Some of these really incredible local talented musicians came together with eight moms from our shelter. They had a creative day in February where they sat together all day long and just learned about each other, talked about their hopes and dreams and what they wanted for their kids. And at the end of it, these musicians helped the moms create these amazing lullabies that are joyful, heartfelt, emotional, raw, they're professional, they're gorgeous, and they tell the stories of the moms and their hopes and dreams for their kids. 
This project gave these moms a chance to get out of their survival mode mechanism, which is really important and really hard to do. So were you uh, in the room when some of these songs were being kind of debuted? Yeah, I was. I bet there was no crying involved oh, in that yeah. experience. Yeah. Well, it was I like big... feeling emotional hearing yeah. about it. We have this kind of joke with all the moms and the musicians that we would just roll like 16 boxes of tissues. <laughs> and what was real, I mean, the day of creating the music was really emotional, but then we all came back together for a CD sharing session where we had all the musicians, all the moms, and then after every song, the moms and the musicians would talk about how they created the song and what it meant to them and how their process was. We had a documentary filmmaker filming it for us. There's just tears everywhere the whole time, but it was so, so powerful. And those tears were really the moms being able to heal. Uh, we're talking to Brandy Tuck, um, who is our new fascinating friend this week. I'm wondering, somebody who's listening to this on the radio, uh, whatever city they may be living in, they want to try to do one thing to help with homelessness, what, what would you what would you recommend? Well, of course, if you want to help with people experiencing homelessness, donate money, donate time. But if you can't do that, the most important thing you can do is when there's someone you see experiencing homelessness on the street, look at them, talk to them, say hello. You don't need to give them money, but just give them a little bit of compassion and, and just human contact. Being homeless is so isolating for people. They don't have friends. They don't have community support networks. They've lost a lot of that. That's why they are oftentimes on the streets. And so just a friendly hello, a conversation would go a really, really long way. All right. That's Brandy Tuck, our new fascinating friend right here on Livewire. Brandy, thank you. If you'd like to hear a song from the Lullaby Project, check out our podcast over at livewireradio.org. Hey, it's Luke. Are you a subscriber to the Livewire newsletter? The newsletter is the best way to stay in the loop on our show, like when we're releasing new podcasts, uh, when we might be recording the show in a city near you. Plus, the newsletter includes awesome photos from our live recordings, so you can see what we all looked like when we were making this radio show and podcast. If you would like to sign up, just click on the Stay Informed button on our website over there at livewireradio.org. Our comedian this week has been named one of uh, Portland Mercury's original geniuses of comedy. She co-hosts the popular weekly stand-up uh, show Earthquake Hurricane, which is amazing if you haven't had a chance to see it. She's performed all over the country at all kinds of festivals like San Francisco Sketch Fest, the Asheville Comedy Festival, and Bridgetown. Please welcome Katie Wynn to Livewire. <laughs> Hello, how are you all? Good, good. That's important to me. Uh, so I work with kids in my day job, uh, and I think a lot about the advice that we give to kids and how most of, most of the time it's way easier said than done, you know? Like if kids be made fun of, all we say is, you know what? You just say, you just say, I am rubber and you are glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. And in my experience, it's been a lot more like, I am Tupperware and you are a tomato sauce. <laughs> Whatever you say becomes a part of me and ruins me forever. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Uh, 
Something kind of personal about me is the fact that I'm a very, very uh, sweaty and oily person. Yeah, and I spend a lot of time and energy trying to not look so sweaty and oily, like a lot. Uh, you know the media just tries to make you want what you don't have. You know, like if you have curly hair, you want straight hair. If you if you have one skin tone, you want another skin tone. Uh, well, I found out that there is this look being marketed by cosmetics companies, and you may have seen this, and it's called looking dewy. Yeah, have you seen this? If you don't know what looking dewy is, looking dewy is essentially looking kind of sweaty and oily. Yeah, which is great for me. But it just got me thinking, though, you know, because a lot of beauty standards that I think I understand and the implications it might have if you see them. For example, if a, if a woman's wearing high heels, her legs will look elongated. You might be like, oh, maybe she's like, like a dancer or something. You know, and she's like really flexible. You know, like in bed. Or if she's got like, the smoky eye look going on, you might be like, oh, maybe she's like exotic or something. You know, and she's like extra sensual. You know, like in bed. <laughs> But if she's looking dewy, someone's got to be like, oh, maybe she like passed out on the lawn last night. <laughs> In bed? Huh. I heard these two pop songs on the radio recently. They're different songs, but I found the lyrics interesting in the same way. Uh, this first song's by this woman. I don't know her name, actually, but she's repeating over and over again throughout the entire song. She's going, I'm a cool girl. I'm a, I'm a cool girl. And I was like, Sure, <laughs> sure, it's a good song. Uh, but then I heard this other song by Rihanna that got really famous, and it's just her repeating over and over again throughout the entire song. She's going, sex with me is so amazing. And I was like, I didn't know we could do that. <laughs> like, I had no idea we could just write and sing songs simply of what we want other people to think about us and make like, a ton of money off of it. And I've been thinking about it a lot, and I've developed some new career goals, uh, and I've been working really hard, uh, and I've written a bunch of songs, and I think I might actually be kind of good at this. Um, I actually have a few songs I'd like to share with you today, if that's cool. Um, thanks. <laughs> Ooh, oh, thank you. I just need like 100% honest feedback, because uh, I really think this could be a new path for me. So this first song I wrote uh, goes like this. Look at me, I'm six feet tall. Look at me, I'm six feet tall. Look at me, I can see the top of the fridge. I totally know what's up there. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Um, okay, so that's just one song I wrote. Uh, I have this other song. It's kind of more kind of like a club, kind of dancey beat. Some of you might enjoy this more. Uh, and it goes like this. I never ever eat food off the floor. Never ever eat food off the floor. I never ever eat food off the floor. Never ever eat food off the floor. Never ever. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. Like I said, I think I'm kind of good at this. <laughs> uh, something uh, that happens a lot in my life. I have a lot of friends who are professional sports fans, um, and. And I'm and not really, I didn't grow up with that. Uh, I can appreciate the work and the talent, the dedication that goes into professional sports. I really can. I just didn't grow up with the emotional investment component. So it's always been kind of weird for me. Uh, and it's like especially weird when there's a large social gathering that's centered around a professional sporting event, you know, because it just kind of makes you feel like a sociopath. <laughs> right? Because just like everyone around you is experiencing all these emotions. And I feel nothing. <laughs> Except the urge to murder. 
<laughs> sports. <laughs> um, uh, last year, I got these new glasses. Uh, not the ones I'm wearing. Uh, but I got these new glasses, and at one point in the transaction, the lady was going over all these optional features I could have gotten. And at one point, she offered me anti-glare lenses. And I was like, oh, 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 no, 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 no. I need to be able to glare. No, thank you. You all have been so wonderful. I'm Katie Wynn. Thank you so much. Katie Wynn, everybody. You're listening to LiveWire Radio from PRI. We'll be right back. Hey, a special thanks this episode to Matt Janke of Portland, Oregon, and Julie Knutson, also of Portland, Oregon. Matt and Julie are part of the LiveWire member community, and they generously support LiveWire with a donation each month. And we are so thankful for their support. It is how we are able to do this show, and I mean that. It's a huge part of what we're doing. So thanks to Matt and Julie for making this episode possible. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRI. We're coming to you from the Alberta Street Pub. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. Our musical guest this hour is a personal favorite of mine. His latest album is Pieces of Sky, uh, which he describes as airport music for reasons that we're going to have him explain when he gets up here. Please welcome my pal Tomo Nakayama to LiveWire. Hi, Tomo. Welcome to the show. Hi, Luke. Good to see you. Um, why do you call this, uh, this album airport music? Um, so I've spent uh, the past couple of years um, busking, essentially, at SeaTac Airport in Seattle, kind of on the, uh, the other side of the security. I got an official badge and everything. And so you have to go through security mm-hmm. to get to the place where you're playing your music. Yeah. Um, they're really long, too. They're like four-hour sets. So I'm just standing, just kind of playing the whole time, and it's it's really good people watching, actually. So. Yeah, I bet. Like, yeah. how many times during an average shift do you see people crying? I mean, yeah, a lot. I don't know. I, I don't think it's because of me, but uh, <laughs> or I hope not. I don't. Just seems like a weird crowd to be playing for because, like, nobody really wants to be at the airport. People are stressed. They're mm-hmm. hurrying. Like, is that... Is it hard to sit there playing this music that you've crafted? It's your heart. You're putting it out there, and someone's just going like, oh, man, the 515 to Tucson is delayed. <laughs> no, I actually kind of enjoy it. It's, um, I feel less personally invested in the music when I can just play and just kind of be in the background, you know? And I think it's a more pleasant way of passing time than, like, what watching the news while you're just sitting there, like, stressed out and terrified. <laughs> you probably see some really weird stuff because people are so emotional and frazzled when they travel. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a different, uh, different audience every 15 minutes, you know what I mean? So, like, yeah, I can, I can experiment a lot with my songs and um, you see people from all over the world. I ran into you once at the... I know. <laughs> I know, I was, like, so excited. I was like, Tomo! Yeah. I was crying at the time, but that was some other stuff I was working through. <laughs> Uh, well, what song are you going to play for us here? I'm going to play the title track. Uh, it's called Pieces of Sky, inspired by the, the experience at the airport, but also about just all the crazy stuff going on in the world and still trying to get up every morning and, yeah, making your way in the world. So, All right, this is Tomo Nakayama on Livewire.
earth is big and the seas are there's so much that I want to show you Evening falls on a clear white moon I can't wait till the daylight holds you Lately seems like the world's on fire Lately it feels like the truth don't matter All I care about's the kind of place We might leave for our sons and daughters Pieces of sky are falling down What will I leave to be found By your eyes By your eyes Oh, oh, oh. Only so much that we can do All we have is our given moment Hit the lights when we clear this room Leave it cleaner than when we found it mm -hmm. Will I feel changed around? When the pieces of sky are coming down Will I live in the sound By and by By and by Tomo Nakayama right here on Livewire.
That's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to all of our guests, Matt Young, Katie Wynn, Brandy Tuck, and Tomo Nakayama. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and Fully. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our operations director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. And our on-air mix is by Jason Powers. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was co-created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Corey Zanin of Minneapolis, Minnesota for his support. For more information about our show, how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Hey folks, it's Luke again. As promised, we're going to include a song from the Lullaby Project that our new fascinating friend Brandy Tuck was telling us about this episode. Uh, The Oregon Symphony and Portland Homeless Family Solutions partnered on this project. Uh, This was where mothers who are experiencing homelessness were able to come together with professional musicians to write, record, and perform lullabies for their kids. Anna Tivill is a Portland area indie folk singer. She paired up with a mother named Kate. They created a lullaby for Kate's daughter named Aurora Eve. And if you'd like to learn more about Portland Homeless Family Solutions and the incredible work that they're doing, head on over to pdxhfs.org. Take a listen. i
Public Radio International.